A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear, so please take care when you're listening. You're just so out of control of it, you know. I felt like a ghost of the system a lot of the time. It's like, no, why can no one actually see who I am or that it's actually a person that you're talking about? Imagine you report your rapist to police and you go through the trauma of not one but two trials to see him put away. And then, after all of that, he gets released. And the first you hear about it is a phone call when he's already out. Why? Because he didn't fill in a form. From Stuff and Bird of Paradise, this is Tell Me About It. The podcast where we take you behind the scenes of our reporting on gender issues. To hear the voices at the centre of our stories. I'm Kirsty Johnston. I'm a reporter at Stuff specialising in the justice system. I'm Michelle Duff. I'm a national correspondent at Stuff and I write about issues affecting women and children. We're both obsessed with the way the system is rigged against women and minorities. And that's what we come up against and what we're trying to highlight in all of our work. And I'm Noelle McCarthy. I'm a writer and a broadcaster and I produce the series. This is episode one and we're starting today with the story of a woman called... Yes, we have to call her that because she's still got name suppression. Her story is still playing out more than 20, nearly 20 years after she first got attacked. There are many, many things that have gone wrong in her case from like very small problems to huge, giant problems. And she's been brave enough to come in and talk to us about it. Okay, before we get into S's story, Christy... Give us a bit of context for this, a bit of context for you, actually. Firstly, this is a story about um, getting a rape conviction and what it's like to endure the trial, in this case, two trials that go with it. And when we first started talking about covering this, you had so many contacts and so many case studies for us to potentially talk about. How did you get to be such an expert on covering rape trials? Well, (laughs) it's a fun question. (laughs) Uh, So a few years ago, uh, I was on the police data website, like on a Saturday night (laughs) with my cup of tea (laughs) in bed, probably. Uh, And I was looking at a specific set of statistics that shows kind of the gap between women reporting sexual assault to police and then what happens afterwards, like what they call the resolution rate. So whether a case is taken to prosecution. And what I saw there that the gap between reporting and prosecution is growing wider and wider. And so I tried to work out a way to tell that story. You know, having the figures are one thing, but both you and Michelle, you need the people to bring these stories to life, in this case, the women. Yeah, well, I think you learn over the years that people, well, statistics are people, you know, and if you don't tell the, bring the people to the forefront and tell their stories, then what are you doing? You can quote statistics to a blow in the face, but people aren't going to care. Like, you have to humanise the story. Um, and I think that's, like, also part of why we're making this podcast, because we want to further humanise these women, you know, like, all these stories that we tell, we interview them for hours, we know these intimate details about their lives, we capture them, and sometimes there are only a couple of lines in the story. Or even if it's like 2,000 words, you can't really really capture it. And what you're doing, putting a life 
to a statistic, a face, a voice to a statistic. That is, you know, it has that cut through and that impact, like you say, in terms of telling the story. But I guess it's also a cost on the sources, you know, and we're already seeing that with this podcast, you know, people who give who give their stories and give their time and their experience and share that with you, Michelle. Yeah, I think in the positions we're in in the media, it's, you know, we're asking people to trust us with for what a lot of them is one of the worst times in their lives. And, you know, it, yeah, it feels, you know, increasingly these days, I feel like I'm spending quite a lot of my time talking people out of talking to me, you know. How does that work? (laughs) It's not great for a journalist, to be honest, but, you know, like you just have to be so, you know, we always are talking to people about, you know, are you, whether they are in the place where they want to tell their story, you know, exact what it is that they want to share with you and how that might look like for them. And sometimes they don't, it ends up that they don't want to. And that's something that you have to be okay with because it's their life. Yeah, I think as a junior reporter, you don't necessarily understand how important that is until you've gone through and you've seen a story play out badly. You know, like maybe you just didn't warn the people that, hey, this is going to be on the front page and that's a really big deal. So now, you know, I will literally be so explicit with people like it could go badly for you like this is it could play out in various ways and we can't predict that and are you okay with that and do you still want to go ahead with the story because you know you are asking a lot of them I mean mainly if we're writing about women you're kind of asking them to tell like these intimate details it's like just you know let's cut you open and like bleed everywhere you know for the story and that's a lot like it can be a lot to have your story uh, but, you know, we do get change and the more every every story, I like to think, just sort of builds up like a Tetris, you know. A whole block of it together fitting yeah, in. Yeah, and eventually it has to get to the top. It's, you know, I, I think if you do it in a ethical and respectful way, then it's it's empowering for women to tell their stories. And a lot of them, the people that we talk to actually do want to talk they haven't been listened to or really heard in that way before so uh yeah that's huge that can be hugely rewarding yeah that's actually the case with the woman that we're going to talk to today um so in her case she she really wants to talk because her first conviction like her rapist's first conviction got thrown out because the judge didn't properly instruct the jury so she had to go through like two traumatic trials for no fault of her own just because there was this kind of procedural error. And this is a story you've already written about. You've already talked about this. We'll have a link yeah, we'll to put it that so people can, can read about exa- exactly what happened there. Absolutely. And I really want to talk to Es about that and how she felt. And I think where we can start with her story is um, when she found out that her rapist conviction had been quashed and that meant that the first trial she'd been through had effectively been for nothing. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting it to be... Fair. I was feeling quite cocky and confident that getting told that there was a retrial, everything sort of blurred out and I couldn't actually hear much of what was being said. You were at work, right? I was at work, yeah. Who yeah. rang you? Uh, the detective. Yeah. Did w- you know, you know, when you saw the name on your phone, did you think, 
Or was there a name? Was it like a... Every time that comes up on your phone, <laughs> it's it is it's a a trigger. I guess the word would be you yeah you definitely get triggered. It's it it's quite good. You have so the detective was probably the closest person for me to speak to who would always relay information, and she was really great in that she would translate a lot of the court jargon for me. Um, but then you would also after that you'd you'd be called. There's a you have your own court victim advisor um, and then there's the lawyer as well and you know sometimes you would get three phone calls telling you the same thing terrible you know you should be able to sort of nominate one person in one way to get all of this information Um, I think the best way would be email because you can see you see it come in and you can choose to not be at work in the middle of a shift and choose when you respond choose as when well, you respond, right? Choose, um, but choose when you look at it. So in, in that situation, yeah, I was in the middle of working. It was near the end of the shift, luckily, and um, I was managing a cafe, and um, and got told that he'd been released. And basically, it felt like the world just fell out under me. And he was like, he was out when you got the call. Yeah, right? he'd already been released. Yeah, yeah, it must have been just. That kind of sick feeling. Yeah, because it's not just that he's released, it's also that he's released without conviction. And so that, that whole f- <coughs> four years or so to get to get to that point, to then be told that he's released and he's a free man and, you know, it, it's quite hard to get your head around the fact that this man, my rapist, isn't on paper a rapist. Can you yeah. tell us the impact that the uh, trial itself had on your life? Um, probably the the hardest part of it is the delays and the waiting. So anything that's going on in in court in the justice system takes a long, long time before you get anywhere. And then if 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 the defence is a great lawyer, then they're going to appeal everything that's happening. And so you'll come up to delay and delay and delay. And so you'll be told there's a date coming up. Oh, great. Okay. There's a date coming up. You get yourself prepared. You get yourself ready. You work towards that. Have that constantly in your mind that that's ahead of you. And then a day before it or the day of, you'll be told that there's been an appeal and it's now been pushed back. And there's been an appeal and it's been pushed back. And so the delay and the waiting is probably the hardest the hardest part because it affects your life because you're planning for it for the How whole time. How much notice do you get? Like would they call you a week before or two weeks before? Or? Uh, it, it just depends. It can be the day of, it can be the day before. So you're ready. Yeah. You know, you've taken the time off work, you've organised childcare, you've done whatever you need to do to get in there and then you get a phone call. Yeah. And and that's all part of the ploy. So, I mean, a good defence lawyer is going to be doing that. They're going to be wearing you down, wearing you down, especially if it's going to be a, a trial by jury, you know. They don't, they don't want you in a great position to take the stand. Um, and so it is a good tactic and a good ploy of a way to get you um, in a fragile state before you even get there. It doesn't feel like anything goes in your favour as a victim in that, so it's it's completely understandable why so few women actually get to the point of going to trial because by the time it takes you to get to trial, you've kind of been knocked back a hundred times to get there. 
And then when you do get there, so you've already done all this, like all of the stuff happening, and then you do get there, and then there's that fear of going on the stand, right? Yeah. And I think you had a particularly brutal. Well, I don't know if any cross examination is nice. I don't, how did, I don't how think did any of it is would ever be nice. You know, I don't think in your worst imaginings you could ever imagine how horrible it is. Um, it's which you know, I mean, they're there to do their job, and they do their job very well. Um, but it is absolutely ten times worse than anything you could imagine. You can't imagine how horrible it is to take the stand and be treated like, um, you know, like like uh, like you're the one in the wrong, and um, especially in that in a you know a sexual crime situation, um, you're absolutely not the victim in the defence lawyer's eyes. You're you are you are the problem. You're the evil in the room, and um, and and they'll trip you up, and they're very clever, and there's no way you can prepare for that either. So. You don't even understand that they're just going on. Um, it's not until you've been through it because you're not prepped for it at all. So basically they have the statement from the perpetrator and that's all that they can go on. That's all where they can ask questions from. And, you know, your your defence can only go on your statement that's recorded. It doesn't matter if you remember more in the time that's happened or anything like that. You can only go on the statements that have been made already. And um, but even that simple thing isn't really explained to you before you take the stand. Yeah, and did she get breaks like while they're cross examining you? Uh, yeah. The the it depends on the judge that you have, but they're not going to let you sit there in an absolute state. Yeah, the the judge will stop if um if it gets too emotional, which it does. And how did you feel when it was explained? Kirsty was telling us earlier why there had to be a retrial. And when that was explained to you, you know, that this is basically a technicality, a court a court technicality meant that, that everything you'd gone through had to be gone through again. How did that feel? Um, that was probably the biggest kick in the teeth of it all, that it wasn't, it wasn't my testimony, it wasn't the witnesses, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that we'd done um, or said wrong or put forward wrong um none of we did the best that we could and that brought and our best brought a guilty verdict and that it was thrown out because of judicial error um it it felt insane and it didn't help with the mental health aspect because it just felt so insane and unfair and unjust and you know, it just it had taken so long to get to trial uh, that that it, it was incomprehensible would be the only word I could use. It, it just didn't make any sense. Like how could how could that happen? Could anyone give you a a, a like a response to that? Did, I mean, you know. Um, at, at the time, it was just as a. It's a rogue judge, were the words used, and um, and you know, there nothing that made sense. None of it sort of made sense to me that that would be enough for a retrial. And the, to me, because I was the victim of it, the, the the scope of, um, the scope of of what we were talking about, it didn't seem to make any sense to the to the um, 
judicial errors that had taken place. They were so minor that it it was like, how does you know how can they overturn a, a rape conviction? Yeah, how can the small thing, this tiny thing, make me go through all of that? Yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, that w- that was hard. But like I say, I didn't feel like I had much of a choice by the time I decided to go for a, to to do it again. I didn't feel like there was much choice for me because it was. I, I didn't want to live with a life of panic attacks, which I'd never had in my life before. Um, I'm a very strong woman. I've never uh, suffered any kind of anxiety like that. And to suddenly have crippling anxiety attacks. You know, the first one, I thought there was a gas leak. Um, you know, and I'd, I just, and I'd never had it. I didn't realise how physically it affects you, that it's not, it's, you're not having a mental episode, you're not suddenly overwhelmed with emotion and upset. That's absolutely not what it's like. It, it feels it's your body is reacting and to me I felt like there was, yeah, like all the, the oxygen was gone. There was a gas leak. It was like oh my gosh, we need to get out of this building. We're going to die. I need to count how many people are in here. How long did that go on for? Like was that between the retrial and uh, the, when you were told about the retrial and going to retrial? Did it keep going while you are in court? Um, I went through a lot of therapy um, to deal with that, and uh, uh, probably once I made the decision to go to retrial, that's um, you know there were a lot of other uh, problems that I was having, but the anxiety attacks I probably felt a bit more in control because as soon as I made the decision to go to retrial, then there were bail conditions put on him, um, and so all of the panic attacks were happening because I felt like, because I kept thinking that I'd seen him, and that he'd come to wherever I was. Um, because you're both living in I the same city. I was scared. I was scared, basically. I was just, yeah, living in constant fear, hypervigilance, thinking that he was anywhere that I was, yeah. And then there's there's nothing in place for him not to, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't in fear physically. I didn't feel like he would physically harm me. Well, I hoped he wouldn't, but um, but I, I really felt like he would be coming places where I was to intimidate. Um, I was just waiting for that to happen. And then, yeah, it was quite similar. After he was he was released on parole just before Christmas, after the second trial, it gets very complicated. Okay, so S is now talking about the second time her rapist was let out. It's confusing because there were two trials. He was originally sentenced to four years in prison in 2017, and then after that conviction was quashed because of the judge's mistake, S went back to court again and a different judge sentenced him to six years in prison in 2020. But the parole board took into account that he'd already served a large part of that sentence, and then by Christmas of that year, they were getting ready to let him out. And again, S had no idea this was coming. So it was just a phone call to say he's been released, or he's been re- he's being released in a week or something. And um, and that, that was the same way to really fight to be able to... Um, put some protection in place for myself. So I hadn't signed a thing that said I am the victim of a sex crime. Um, and so to be on a register for that and to be told when he'll go up for parole and things like this, um, this is what they, they after the trial and, and he's found guilty from the first one, they come and say, oh, you need to... You need to sign this thing. You need to we'll email it to you. You need to print it out, and you need to sign it. I think the first time I looked at it, you know, it literally is a. It literally says, "I'm a victim of a sex crime," 
and I want to be in, you know, it, it was just it was just signing a bit of paper saying I, I was raped. And, um, and everything didn't about they, didn't it they already really know? Every, well, that's a, like, there's know, a conviction. Sort of, <laughs> everything about it is so abhorrent, and it's that's one thing that really needs to be. You know, it it should be if you don't want to be informed of anything that's happening, opt out. Then you can opt out of that. You know, but if but otherwise, you should just automatically be part of the register because it's really hard just to because exactly what traumatized people need is some paperwork to do yeah yeah and to, to <laughs> go to warehouse stationery and print it out and you know even little things like that i can't explain but it's like if you don't have it you don't it's not something you want um, oh hey bro do you mind printing this out for me you don't want someone to see it yeah could you just quickly print out my rape declaration yeah basically <sighs> and um or you don't want to go to warehouse stationery or can you just print this you know another, another, there's no easy way to do it so so I screwed up and I didn't do it. Um, I don't think you screwed up. No, yeah, I think that's like a I. justifiable yeah. response, yeah. to be honest. And, um, so does that mean, and what did that mean? So it what that meant get... was that I didn't get informed that he was up for parole, which meant that I didn't get a say to have my say of, of um, how that would make me feel or my thoughts on it. I was ringing the parole board saying, is there anything... Um, in places, do I need a protection order? What What do I do, you know, to look after myself? We can't tell you anything, ma'am, because you haven't signed this bit of paper. Um, you just need to sign that and get that back to us. So this form that Es is talking about is an application to go on the victim notification register. And, like, we were kind of shocked, actually, at how much of a faff it is and how stressful it was for Es. So we asked police about this, and this is the response they emailed to us. Uh, police acknowledge concerns around access to the victim notification register and recognise the need to improve the process. Legislation currently sets out an opt-in system which requires the signed consent of a victim to be added to the register. Police are looking to work alongside other justice sector colleagues on options to improve the process and ensure it best serves the needs of all victims. As it stands, the victim's notification register remains an important and valuable service for the safety and long-term well-being of victims. But when we spoke to Dr Kim McGregor, who's the Chief Victims Advisor to the Government, she said this part of the system has been in need of urgent attention for a while now. The police are currently uh, working very hard to um, improve systems. But this is not just the police. As I said, it's across multiple systems going into corrections. Um, so I have been working alongside corrections as well over the last few years. And um, another positive outcome of working uh, with corrections is they uh, realise the gaps and that victims need information um, when they need it and when they feel ready to access it. So um, since working with corrections over the last couple of years, they've start, they've developed and are now currently piloting a management tool where uh, victims can go into that tool, um, e even from their own phone, um, they get a secure um, link um, to find out, you know, if, um, if there's information about a release, there'll be a little flag that come up, comes up, um, and that flag can go to a, a support person if the, the victim wishes. So this this is a, a management tool that's being piloted at the moment, and I'm sure, and I know that uh, police and um, 
justice will will want this at once um, you know it's, it's successful once it's further along. So what else do we need to make this happen now? I mean, you wrote the report in two thousand nineteen. You know, what does it? Do people need to? Do you need more money? Do people need to be talking to each other? I mean, how many more victims have to go through this before it changes? There have been multiple reports. You're absolutely right. Since the Victims Task Force in the 1990s, every report that we get says that victims need more information. It's a complex system. They need, you know, help to navigate. Uh, they need more support. Um, what we we don't have, we don't have a, a watchdog for victims. So my office is is the first office that is looking at victims across the criminal justice system. And it's a very small response. So um, I'm I'm an advisor to the minister, so I'm not a victims commissioner. Um, and when I first got into this role, I, I thought, um, you know, this, this could work, this office. And I think this office has worked well because I'm now being, being listened to, uh, my office is being listened to by um, the senior leaders of the justice sector. Um, so they're they're now they understand that um, there have been multiple reports over the years, and that is a really a big um, complex system to fix. But they must get started, and so they're working very hard uh, now to look at their own individual systems, and then also to join them up. So that's Kim McGregor, the Chief Victims Advisor. I mean, on the one hand, it's great to have her in that role and pushing for change, but um, if she sounds like she's got faith in the system, it's because she kind of has to. Like, she's inside that system now. I feel like it's harder for you and me to have the same faith, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you've done a few of these stories about what happens in rape trials and after them... It is hard to keep the faith. And look, I hope that that pilot Kim's talking about works out because we can obviously do better than what we've got. I mean, even the police are admitting that we can do better than a system which puts so much onus on the survivor to do the paperwork. I mean, who wants to go to warehouse stationery the week before Christmas, for God's sake? Yeah, Essa's story is such a clear example of the victim notification register not even doing the most important thing it's meant to do, which is to keep people safe. Her whole experience, like during and especially after these two trials, reads like a process that was just never focused around her needs. You know, the the law is the law, and um, and everyone has a right to parole. Um, and that his situation might have been different. If I'd been able to put that submission in prior, I'm sure it would have made a difference um, to his application. But you know, that's after going through seven years of that kind of ordeal, it's it's you know you can't keep living with with that. And so it was like, well, how do I find a positive from 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 all of that? And I was like, well, it's not how I wanted it to be over, but it's over, and and that's the positive. You know that I told so that regardless of the fact that he's out and he's free, it's not the outcome that I wanted. But there's nothing else that can be done. It is over. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. the other thing was though that you've still got your name suppression, right? Because that was like another admin task, effectively. Yeah, yeah. So did you try and get it lifted? Um, what do you have to do to get it lifted? 
you need to again put submissions in to the court and have that um, and go up to it, and that needs to go to a judge and then a judge will decide whether or not he thinks you have valid reasons for lifting your name suppression and is I want my name back enough no no what reasons do they want I guess you have to show that I don't know it seems so it's it's another one of those things which just seems kind of crazy you have to show that you um are able to handle having your name suppression lifted because it's automatic right that you get it yeah it's so, automatic so why do you want it lifted um I want it lifted because uh I don't I don't believe any victim should carry the shame of something that was done to them um and and I think the only way that we can start making a change to that that shame that just gets instantly allocated to you if you are a victim of a sex crime um, is by talking about it with with other women. And, you know, if the statistics are one in three women this has happened to, you know, then this this is rampant. It's a huge problem that no one talks about. And you can't talk about it with your friends even because it has such a taboo on it. You can't talk about it just as a normal... You can talk about murder, you know? You can go and, you know, be having a, a dinner at a friend's place and stuff and you could talk about a murderer or a story you've heard about someone who got murdered and you all happily talk about it over a glass of wine. But if you mention rape, well, everyone gets very quiet and it's very awkward and the subject has changed. Now, I don't see how rape is intolerable but murder is okay. You know, yeah, they're, so they're, they're both yeah, abhorrent. So you're appointed some humiliation. Yeah. It's like because you've had this happen to you, you automatically have to have to feel shameful. Yeah. It's like it comes with the territory. And, and that, that happens all through the court system as well. So, you know, I was told a lot that, um, no, don't go to this hearing. You Don't go to um, even, even the the verdict, you know. You, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go is what I was told the whole time. And I was like, well... Uh, is it a legal thing? Am I not allowed to be there? Or is it just that no one's done it? And you write about that so powerfully. You write about wanting to see, yeah. wanting to turn up and be there and see it for yourself because it's your experience. Yeah. And it's all these people talking about you, basically, and something that happened to you. And for me, the biggest thing was all of, you know, if you're sitting there waiting. You're doing that probably in one of your own spaces and, and then that's where that memory will, will stay. Whereas to me, I was like, no, this can all... First off, I want to know what you're saying about me. <laughs> and um, and But secondly, all of the memories of, of this, I want... It it's feels much healthier for that to stay in the courtroom and, and then I can leave it there mm-hmm. and, and not have it as part of my everyday life. But um, but there's there's so many things which are just quite archaic, and that's that whole shame thing. You shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be there. Don't show your face. It's quite like paternalistic, eh? It's like, oh, you're a little victim. Yeah. We know about your feelings. Like you're going to be sad and traumatized, and this is how we expect and want you to behave. It's like they put you in a box, not realizing, which I think we all know from having done the work that we do, that victims are like the strongest people. That's what the detective said about you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's and it's it is you you've it, that shame sort of just keeps following you all through it and and you're told you you know you're you're separate to it and I mean there's 
there's power in it too. I mean, I've, I found by, by going, I'm a witness in a crime. I'm not the victim. That, that, gave, me, that gave me strength. I'm, a, I'm just a witness in a crime. You know, that, that you could put yourself outside of it a bit and that made it easier. But there's just all of, you know, you're just so out of control of it. You're not an actual, you know, I felt like a ghost of the system a lot of the time. It's like, what, no, why can no one actually see who I am or that it's actually a person that you're talking about this, you know? Can I ask you a question that might seem quite basic? It, has it all been worth it? Uh, yes, because, you know, the the whole experience, I guess, is really cathartic. Um, writing about it, <laughs> super cathartic, helped more than anything. Um, uh, from a justice point of view, I would still struggle to say that right now, but it's still raw, you know. It's, only, it's less than a year old um, of him being released after six months of a second trial that took seven years. So I think I think that in 20 years or hopefully even 10 years, I'll say absolutely it was because it was about, it was always about more than just me. It was about standing up for women and it was standing up for women who didn't have the strength to go through the trial and, um, and standing up against rape and rape culture. Um, so it was always bigger than me, and for that, it was worth it. Um, right now, it's a bit still too raw, but I'm. But I know in my heart that in ten years, I'll say a hundred percent, it was worth it. And that was S, who's willing to share her story, even though she can't put her name to it because she still has name suppression. After she left. We were thinking about how, for Kirsty especially, Issa's story, while it is unique to her, chimes with so many other cases that she and I have reported on over the years, and it highlights a whole heap of broader issues. What's really hard is that lots of my work is examining, like, the fact that police aren't taking as many prosecutions, right? And I personally think that they should be taking more prosecutions because that's the system we've got, that's how you get justice. However... The difficult thing is, like, do we want to be locking people up? Probably not. And it's like, and actually, that's a whole wider issue. Yes. you know, like, what is this whole system anyway? And so I think that's the thing. There's, like, all these competing things that you feel when you're looking at this. But currently, that's the system we've got. And people like Is show that, I mean, eventually, you know, mm. it can work. And this is the kind of... Um, that's all you'll concede. <laughs> eventually. <laughs> Sometimes it is fine. But also, like, you know, there's more than this, right? It's like consent education in school and, you know, teaching. And this is culture, isn't it? This is the culture around it. Because the criminal justice system isn't the answer um, to everything. I mean, it's there for a reason, but, you know, we as society, it's it's a way deeper issue. Yeah, we should try and prevent the rape or whatever from happening first, ideally, so you don't even need it. And I I know that's like, probably not possible for yeah, in every case, hey, but, you know, we haven't really got that far through that in New Zealand yet, even though, you know... Not at all. We've been banging on about it. 
you know, one of the things that is is great about journalism is that it can bring about change. I mean, it mightn't feel like it's very fast moving for both of you. It does not. Face. Well, just pushing write, water up yeah. with a rake or something. Just write the same story for 15 years, see what happens. But, 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 and sometimes there is a story that changes things. Next week, Michelle, we're going to talk about cervical cancer and we're going to talk about... Um, a mom and a daughter who are coming in to see us, who um, who got in contact with you, I think, or who you knew. And, you know, one of the reasons that we have a screening program in New Zealand now for, for all its imperfections, and we'll talk about some of those next week, but one of the reasons we have the program is because of journalism, actually, is because of the story about the unfortunate experiment, right? Oh, absolutely. One of the reasons I got into health journalism is the so the story in Metro magazine called The Unfortunate Experiment. Sandra Coney and Philida Bunko, and that was exposing that there, there was a doctor at Auckland Women's who had been conducting a series of experiments that women didn't know about into... Um, on their bodies. On their bodies, yeah, yeah. To, set, to, to prove his uh, idea that... To, uh, survive that changes cancer precancerous changes didn't lead to cancer and so yeah that and that being exposed is what led to our screening program the one we have today mm. my personal heroes are yeah like such a huge change Preach. from one story one one can only dream <laughs> Tell Me About It is made by Bird of Paradise for Stuff, written by me, Kirsty Johnston, Michelle Duff and Noelle McCarthy and produced by Noelle. Carol Hirschfeld is our executive producer for Stuff and all of our engineering and sound design is thanks to Phil, Simon and Nicole at Matrix Digital. Our music is with kind permission from Tammy Nielsen, our queen. Tell Me About It was made possible by New Zealand On Air. Subscribe and review us please on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.